If business is to be the major central defining entity in American society, which it is and has been for a very long time, then it needs to answer to the interests of society. So the American dream became a fairy tale when business decided that it didn't need to answer to the interests of society. Traditional corporate practices got us to a life-threatening climate and unjust society. Changing this trajectory needs bold solutions from diverse thinkers. Welcome to Impact Reimagined, the podcast that helps you discover and envision a future where humanity's greatest problems are solved. I am Dr. Noah Gaffney, Executive Director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and your host. delighted to start off our pilot season with a person whose last name I bet you'll recognize, Abigail Disney. Abigail is a remarkable activist and filmmaker. She's not afraid to stand up for what she believes is right, even if that means criticizing the company her family founded. In her latest documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, Abigail follows Disneyland workers who struggle to make ends meet. The film uses the Disney example to tell a bigger story about the way corporations treat their workers. In today's conversation, Abigail explains how businesses in the United States have evolved to prioritize the interests of their shareholders over those of their employees. We talk about the ways in which this change has rendered the American dream out of reach for most workers. On the show, Abigail also encourages us to envision a world where we change corporate power dynamics by educating leaders about responsible business practices. I grew up literally in the shadow of the Walt Disney Company in Burbank, California. (laughs) And my father worked there all of his adult life. And my grandfather was Roy O. Disney, who co-founded the company with Walt, his brother. And I have beautiful memories of all of it, especially going to Anaheim with my grandfather, who who used to take us with him sometimes when he had to go on business and was a very blessed thing. Can you speak a little bit about your experience carrying the name Disney? How did that influence the work that you do today and how did it influence you growing up? That's such a great question because it's a really interesting name to carry. If you have to carry a name, it's not like Rothschild or Rockefeller or something. It has that connotation for a lot of people but it also comes with a whole other set of connotations, many of which are about joy and family and love and things that make people really happy. It's nuanced over the years, and it's the nuances that have grown over time have been less than good and um, less than positive, and that's been sort of the start of where I begin to understand that the company's maybe taken a turn that isn't great and it's certainly bad for the long-term well-being of the company. I used to hand my credit card over and people would just say, oh my gosh, you must have had such a happy childhood and things like that. And there was a point somewhere in the late 90s when it started being, my goodness, you must be so wealthy and, you know, or some more shadowy version of that. And it did strike me as 
tragic, really, that my name had lost, at least that part of the name had lost first place in people's imaginations. This change in people's reactions to the name Disney came hand in hand with the changes in how the company treated their workers. I remember I used to come in through the back door (laughs) that was a little side door along Main Street about halfway down with my grandfather. And, you know, before we would go through the gate into the park, my grandfather would always be surrounded by people who worked there. And he would know people's names and he would ask about their families. And they tended to be just, you know, incredibly warm, lovely, unbelievably positive people. It's a very special person who gets to work at that company. And they know it. And they work there in part because they believe the job that they are doing is really important and valuable to society, to other families. They are givers. And so that was the beginning of my understanding and awareness of how people related at the company. So years later, when some of the employees reached out to me and I started to really understand what was happening, it wasn't just a question of the pay not being quite right. The shift was really psychic and emotional. And so the pay was a reflection of a deeper thing that also manifested in many, many, many different kinds of corporate behaviors. But when I sat with them for the first time in 2018, what I heard from them was this kind of pain. They were the same people I remember from my childhood, these extraordinary, giving, loving people who were really proud to be working at the company. But they described this process by which, you know, well, we used to have a cafeteria, and then we had a terrible cafeteria, and then we had a cafeteria that was outsourced, and then we had no cafeteria at all, and we had to buy food at the park. And then eventually we bought food at the park at the same retail price. Everybody else was buying food at the park. So it's this death by a thousand cuts, but in every aspect of their relationship to the company. And you could almost see in the background the wheels of management turning like, oh, this year, I can perform for my superiors some cost savings by, you know, taking away the discount for the food for the workers or what other is movable part do I have? And the movable part always wound up being around workers and making, you know, a janitor clean six bathrooms instead of five and 200 people do costumes instead of 250. And speaking with Disney employees, Abigail learned that they felt neglected by the company. What I heard in my first meeting, what the sum total of it was that somewhere along the line, management came to believe that they were separate from, different from, other than the people who, you know, rolled up their sleeves and did the hard work of actually making things happen. And they came to understand those people as interchangeable. A lot of them told me that when they would go in and they'd complain about what's happening, whoever was the HR person would say, well, I have a stack of resumes on my desk. So they came to understand they were seen as endlessly replaceable. And they've never been because they're very special people. And so that was what we tried to follow in the film, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. We tried to talk about Like, well, first of all, what does this look like in life? Like, how does this translate into a parent trying to be a good parent to their children or a person 
finding a house not two hours away from the job. And I think as far as management is concerned, when people walk off the property, they cease to exist, you know, and, and so whatever happens, you know, beyond the pale there has nothing to do with them. I mean, we lost our humanity. The changes Abigail saw at Disney reflect a larger trend companies experienced at the time. In 1970, economist Milton Friedman published his famous essay, which argued that the sole responsibility of companies should be to their shareholders. Milton Friedman suddenly caught fire, even though in the 60s he was seen as a marginal and a bit of a nutty figure. And when he talked about how the only way to know whether a company is doing well is the price of it. And because shareholders were the owners of the company and shareholders were in charge of everything. They could hire and fire CEOs. They were the be-all and end-all, in part because I think he, it was the only truly measurable thing. <laughs> and if it couldn't be measured, it didn't matter. And, and that sensibility kind of mushroomed like the way mold does in your closet. It just grew and grew and grew of its own logic and its own imagination. By the 90s, CEO compensation was yoked to shareholder value because it was meant to dial back excessive CAO compensation. There was The intention was to dial that back because if we, it seems logical, if we align shareholder value, how well a company is doing to the CEO's performance, then, then his interests will be aligned with the shareholder's interests. But what ended up happening was in part, his interests were aligned with the shareholder's interests and no one else's. And when Milton Friedman took charge and became the guiding spirit, he offered a sort of moral cover to all sorts of bad behavior. And the moral cover was, well, but if the company does well and the economy does well and the rich get richer, then everybody does better. And so people who might have been taught by their mothers back in kindergarten that they should share their toys, that they should not hit people, that they should not be selfish, that they should not take every from, from themselves, were now offered a reason to reject that, essentially an ideology or a moral spirit, in favor of this thing that they could believe was actually a social good. I was talking to a hedge fund manager just recently about that day when Gordon Gecko said, in 1987, Greed is Good, and he was the villain of that film. Abigail is talking about Wall Street, a film about a young stockbroker who becomes involved with Gordon Gecko, a ruthless wealthy investor and corporate raider. And I was in the theater, and I remember people going crazy and applauding him. And it was so clear that between when Oliver Stone started that film and when it came out, Things had shifted so totally, and that greed is good ideology had so taken hold that no one could tell who the villain of the film was anymore. It didn't matter. And my hedge fund friend said to me, well, I remember that day because it was like an animal spirit was unleashed on Wall Street. Everything becomes possible when greed is good. As this ideology spread, workers were pushed to the side in the name of profit. Upward mobility became increasingly difficult to achieve, turning the American dream into a fairy tale. And it has become a fairy tale because 
greatest good was mistaken for a moral ideology. And it, it's not. It's an excuse. The people who are elevated now to the top are elevated to the top of companies precisely because they behave and they perform in ways that support other people in feeling that they're right and decent people in operating in this way. And so you have to look at this whole structure, Wall Street, the business press, and the managements of corporations have all swallowed the same pill. And it's kind of making us all sick. So where do we go from here? How do we turn the tide? How do we think about ways that we can innovate around workers' rights and thinking about every stakeholder in a company? Well, sometimes innovation is like a shiny object that distracts from the tools already in your toolkit. And in the case of workers, well, you know what? Collective bargaining is the only thing workers have to protect them from the vagaries and fashions that take management's imaginations. So first of all, everybody needs to get their head wrapped around that collective bargaining is a very important part of American life. We have eviscerated the working and middle class in this country precisely because we eviscerated collective bargaining and all the ways in which, one of which is unions, workers can organize around their own self-interest because there is an inherent tension between the interests of workers and the interests of managers and owners of capital. It just is the way it is. Today, worker unions and collective bargaining continue to decline despite a majority of Americans agreeing that this is bad for working people. Opponents of labor unions argue that they are an anti-competitive force in markets. But for Abigail, workers should be prioritized above profit. In her view, the solution to the unjust conditions many workers face may simply lie in going back to a time when collective bargaining and unions were respected. Everybody's got to get their head wrapped around the idea that every single human being deserves dignity. And if workers are to have dignity, they need to be able to collectively bargain. And managements need to stop behaving as though that's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. So that's the first thing. Then the second thing is this idea that if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter, is a big problem. If all you do is affect measurable problems, then, you know, your whole soul can go just draining out from the center of you and you wouldn't know it. And, and that's why toward the end of our film, Rebecca Henderson says a very important thing, which is we've let the search for daily bread, the getting and spending, replace what our ancestors used to call our souls. So, yeah, I have to revert to an abstract set of principles around the centrality of human interests and the interests of the planet to the essence of what a society is. And if business is to be the major central defining entity in American society, which it is and has been for a very long time, then it needs to answer to the interests of society. So the American dream became a fairy tale when business decided that it didn't need to answer to the interests of society. Society is well served by things like social mobility, freedom of choice, which poverty is a very, very big inhibitor of, and respect, basic human respect. My grandfather 
always picked up a piece of garbage when he went to Disneyland. And when I asked him why he always did that, he said, I want everyone to know that nobody's too good to pick up a piece of garbage. And the modern managerial class would laugh at that. And frankly, if he were a young MBA just starting out and his colleagues saw him bending over and picking up trash, he would never become the CEO. He would get winnowed out long before he got there. So we are selecting out people who understand the world as a gathering of equals, trying to find a way to arrange themselves around the maximum benefit of the most people. That was what Trickle Down promised us and has demonstrated time and time and time again, it cannot provide. And so going back to the example of your grandfather and how today you think we would actually winnow out somebody with that heart and that mindset, what do you think we can teach managers and others in terms of reshifting that mindset back to what it used to be or version 2.0 of that, right? Yeah, we don't want it to go back to what it used to be because it also used to be fine with redlining and discriminating against people of color and women and so forth. So going back is not an option. We want to go forward into something better. And by the way, also not on the list of priorities back then was the planet being poisoned and heated to an unlivable temperature. So forward is where we want to go. I think we need to remember that a change this deep and existential doesn't happen quickly. And therefore, it didn't get to us quickly and it won't go away quickly. There's no magic bullet for this. This is about silver BBs um, and a million ways of addressing the problem. Every CEO in America right now, not every CEO, but most of them, came of age when Milton Friedman was king. So we are still in a business context being guided by people who were offered that moral cover, some of them saw through it for what it was. Many of them still talk a good game, but still have this lingering thing that holds them back from fully embracing a stakeholder-based capitalism. So we need to change the way business schools talk to students. At Harvard, ethics used to be a two-week optional seminar that always makes me laugh. It's now a year-long course and it's required for every first year. So it starts there and Rebecca Henderson teaches it and she teaches it as, you know, a human and earth-centered set of problems and ideas that need to be dovetailed with the way businesses work. And if businesses can't work around those interests, then businesses can't work. (laughs) These are not options. So if you can't afford to pay a living wage, you can't afford to hire a person. It's kind of simple. So we have to change business schools. It's going to come back to how we educate young people and how we raise them to understand the point of them being on this planet (laughs) and going to business school and figuring out why they think the way they think and thinking differently about the kind of people we want to form in those educational contexts to hold people accountable to higher principles than just shareholder value. Education is the first step to shift the way some business leaders think about money. Abigail envisions a world where executives focus on their contributions to society. We need managers to come back to an understanding of themselves as not these special, you know, divine creatures who have magic powers, are irreplaceable, and therefore must be 
rewarded amply. I mean, I do wish I had a magic wand. I wish that I could figure out how to take the interest in money for its own sake out of people's hearts. Money is just an instrument. And when you have a hundred billion dollars, but you still want more, like any decent psychiatrist would say, my goodness, <laughs> why? <laughs> you know, the hundred billion dollars, you could probably live on $99 billion quite well. Why do you need more? So there's, there's a bit of a, I would call it like a sickness in the American spirit because you know, Jeff Bezos is out there and he's on the covers of magazines and he's praised and he's seen as, you know, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And young people look at that and they want that. And they, you know, if if only we could find a way to replace the love of money with all the things that we want money for and the things that money is for and about. First of all, safety and housing and food and raising families and education and healthcare and all these other things. And then we could understand, like, if we could live with plenty instead of a lot, if we could all let go of that need for that little bit extra that we imagine will make us feel safe and secure, which never kicks in, never kicks in. They did a survey of people who inherited money and asked them how much money they would need to feel totally secure. And everyone named a figure twice as much as they'd inherited, no matter what they'd inherited. So if we could all just surrender that extra and live happily, you know, in a smaller container, there would be enough, more than enough for everyone. Abigail believes that governments also have a responsibility to regulate the way we do business. We need to go back to the government and say, do your job. You know, there's antitrust regulation for a reason. There is an anti-monopoly history in this country for a reason. It's bad for business. It's bad for all of us. You know, we have all agreed as a country that taxes are a thing and that they should be collected and not avoided. And, you know, we should enforce the tax laws that exist and really rethink from a principled place the tax laws as they should be. There's an abundance of work we need to do, and it's going to have to take place in a moral and emotional space, in our educations, in our families, in the way we understand the world. It's going to have to take place in the political realm, in what we expect of our politicians and who we elect to office. And it's going to have to take place in media so that we can talk about things which places human beings at the center of the framework instead of around the periphery as sort of like extra things to think about once we've counted up our profits. And so given all of that, what do you see as the future of labor rights in America and responsible business more broadly? Well, I think that there are unions and then there are para-unions or workers' movements that are very interesting that young people have risen up and started trying to think outside of the union box. So I don't want to denigrate unions because they still do important work. They still are very valuable. They're working their butts off with no resources and no support from government or society. So um, we need people who are working in these, especially at big companies, in these low-end jobs to rediscover the value of worker organizing because otherwise they are stuck in these dead-end jobs forever. There's no way out. And then we need to think about these para-union movements like Domestic Workers United and Erica Smiley's group who are trying to think about 
the problem of the gig economy, the problem of being a domestic worker and being behind these private walls and not really having any recourse to defend your rights and your pay. And the government needs to re-understand its job is not primarily the partner of business, but the partner of people. It partners with business because of people and not the other way around. For Abigail, real change will only occur when business leaders begin to prioritize people over profit. The challenge is that what every single person needs as an individual also happens to be what society needs as a whole. And every society is comprised of lots of individuals. Individuals need to put other humans at the center of their thinking and their understanding about the world. They need to align their values with a higher sense of how they fit into a broader world. We need to recognize that we need each other. We're interlocking parts. We're not a bunch of individual cogs separate from each other, but we are much more like a web than we are like a chain. And Gloria Steinem says it very well, what if we are linked, not ranked? And that changes so very, very much, doesn't it? So if you think about all these different ways of shifting the way we operate, each of us as individuals, that amounts to a social change. And so we need to be driving at first fixing our own hearts and looking deep inside and asking ourselves hard questions about how we operate and like, is the business, the job we have or the business context we're operating in, does it really align with our values? And if this is the job we're in and we're doing things that don't align with our values, what can we do to change that? I know it feels powerless in the middle of a system, but the middle of the system is the only part that's really gonna change the whole system. We all belong together. We are each other's business. Speaking to Abigail reminded me that creating change starts within our own companies. Corporations can be responsible to lift up their workers so they can have the dignified lives that they deserve. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to Impact Reimagined so you don't miss out on new episodes. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode. Impact Reimagined is produced by the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and Human Group Media. If you want to learn more about our work at Rutgers, visit rixie.business.rutgers.edu.